Good morning. Good to see a, somebody out there with a Chicago Bear sweatshirt on. I feel your pain, brother. <laughs> hey, this morning I was reminded as, um, as to why you, you don't feel the need to build amusement parks around here with roller coasters. You just have earthquakes. And I'm like, yahoo, you know. Um, hey, it's good to be with you again. And I want to take just a moment and thank everyone that uh, made our coming here possible and, and getting the uh, apartment ready for us. And I know some of you donated some things or loaned some things to us so that uh, we would be comfortable. And uh, there was a fruit basket, a couple gift cards in there. And so just... I want to say thanks to all of you that uh, had a part in that, and we feel very welcomed, and we feel honored to be here and uh, spend some, uh, some time uh, with you folk. One of the things that my organization does is called the All Church Assessment, and that'll take place uh, two weeks from yesterday, the 26th. And uh, that's a really important part of what we do because we gather data from everybody that's willing to participate, and then the experts take it, that data, and crunch it and roll it around, and they spit out a, a booklet 50 to 75 pages long uh, that tell things about the church and some th areas that we're strong in, areas that we need to work on. It'll also generate a pastor profile sheet, which indicates the kind of uh, things you ought to be looking for in your next pastor. So it's really important that, that you help us do that. And so uh, to accomplish that, there are several things that are, that are going to take place. Out there on the table, Susan has set several things. And the first thing that you'll see when you go out and look at the table is there'll be a stack of, called it's called life cycle evaluation. And you know, please take one, take it home, fill it out. Uh, if there are questions there that you don't know the answer to, just leave it blank. Uh, and guess what? You're not getting graded on this or anything. So if you do that, that would be great. And then there's a different form called the written survey. And if you'll take that and fill that out, that would be a really, really big help. And you understand that the more people that uh, participate and fill out the information, uh, the better it is in terms of getting accurate results. So if you would stop by that table, pick up one of each of those forms, take it home, fill it out the best you can, and then bring it back uh, next Sunday, and that would be so helpful to us. There's another part of this that um, you'll, you'll notice when you go out there on the table, there are sign-up sheets. And there are sign-up sheets out there because on the 26th, which is, again, two weeks from yesterday, um, we are going to set up four different rooms so that we can conduct uh, interviews with individuals or with a husband and wife. If you want to come in together, you can do that. And there'll just be a person in there. I, I might be in one room, and my boss might be in another room. And, and so we just ask you things like, how far away from the church do you live? Uh, what attracted you to Birch Ridge? Why are you still attending here? Um, what do you like about the church? It's just some really low-key, non-threatening things like that. 
So it would be a real helpful to us if, if you would, uh, when you leave, stop and, and fill out uh, a time, your name in a time slot and maybe even put your phone number there just in case we need to get a hold of you. So uh, please consider doing that. We would love to have an opportunity to chat with you one-on-one -on -one about your church, and that'll be uh, very, very helpful if you would do that for us. Well, I don't know about you, but I, I love the book of Jonah. I think Jonah is one of my favorite books in the entire Bible. It, it, uh, I mean, the storyline, the plot line is incredible. Uh, there are even some funny jokes in the book. Uh, it's a book filled with irony. Uh, the irony runs deep in that book. It's, in, it's just amazing. And so I, I want to preach uh, today on Jonah chapter 1, and I'm going to preach the following Sundays on the, each chapter that follows. So four sermons, four chapters, and so we begin today in Jonah chapter 1. Well, if I would take a moment and just ask each of you what you think the greatest threat to our world today might be, I'd probably get a lot of different answers, but there might be some of you that would say terrorism. Terrorism is a horrible thing. And then as you begin to talk about your answer, terrorism, you might mention the group ISIS. And you might even say, well, these ISIS terrorists, they are headquartered in Mosul. And these are really scary people. These are people that are so scary that they kill people and chop them up and, you know, just read the news. It's, it's terrifying. And my question to you as we begin to think about the book of Jonah is this. What if tomorrow morning God tapped you on the shoulder and said, hey, I want you to be a missionary and I want you to go to the people called ISIS and I want you to get on a plane and go to Mosul tomorrow morning. Yeah, I hear you. I'd be like, mm, who? Me? That's essentially what's happening here in the book of Jonah. Let's read the first two verses in Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, that's really an interesting couple of verses. One thing I think you need to know right away is that Nineveh was a really large, large city of filled with wicked, wicked people. And it's filled with people known as the Assyrians, or the Ninevites, I guess, but they were part of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire, back in the days of Jonah, they were the sworn number one enemies of the Israelites. They were the, the bad, bad people. In fact, as you look there at the end of verse 2, that phrase, their wickedness has come up before me, the, a, a perfectly legitimate paraphrase of that, of that part of the verse is, they stink to high heaven. <laughs> it's, as though, it's as though God is up there in heaven and he's holding his nose, looking down at the Ninevites because they are so evil, they are so mean, they are so terrible. And it's that group of people that God taps 
Jonah on the shoulder and says, I want you to go there. Now, historians tell us that these really were really mean, mean people. That they, they were known for doing things like when they captured an enemy, they would take knives and literally slice their lips right off their face. Or they would chop their hands off. It's just kind of the people they are. This is what they did, you know. And if you would have gone to Nineveh in the days of Jonah and walked up to the, to the main courtyard out there in front of the main palace or the main building, you would see a huge mound. And you'd be like, what's that? What is that? And so as you walk closer and closer, you would begin to see that this huge mound, this great big pile, was made up of the, of the skulls of their enemies. This is the kind of people that these Ninevites are. And this is the kind of people that God is calling Jonah to go to. Hey, Jonah, I've got something for you to do. Arise and go. And so God's plan is to send Jonah there to the Ninevites. But now verse 3, Jonah has another idea. <laughs> verse 3 begins like this, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now that's really an interesting verse and I have a map that I'm going to show you here on the screen. Now look at this. So he's going to the port and buy passage on a boat to Joppa, the bottom right corner. From there, God's plan for him is for him to go on a boat to Nineveh, just above there in the right. But Jonah's like, wait a minute. Give me a ticket, not for Nineveh, give me a ticket for Tarshish, which is all the way in the opposite direction, as far away as you could go in the known world at that time. Do you see that? I mean, look at that. I've tried to think of, of maybe how to compare it, and I, I haven't done the math or anything. It'd be like God knocking you on the shoulder and say, hey, tomorrow morning, I want you to, to drive to Anchorage, because I got something for you to do in Anchorage, and you get up in the morning and you gas up your car and you say, oh, and you start and you turn south and you're going to drive to Miami City, Florida. I mean, it's, 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 it's that kind of, of the magnitude of disobedience. You know, Jonah's like, nope, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm going in the opposite direction. Now, I, I, I guess that you know, me describing the Ninevites, you could probably see that you know, scary people, who could blame him for not going there? And, you know, I'm kind of with Jonah on this one. But there's another reason, a deeper reason, why Jonah isn't too cracked to go to Nineveh. And we don't see the reason revealed until the end of the book, but I'm going to tell you now. And one of the reasons he doesn't want to go to Nineveh, I guess the main reason, is that these Ninevites are the sworn, hated 
enemies of the Israelites. And Jonah's afraid if he goes and preaches to them that God's going to show favor to them. He doesn't want that. After all, they're the other guys. They're the bad guys. They're the mean guys. They're the guys that slice off people's lips and chop off people's hands. Why would we want God to show favor to them? And so he gets, he gets on this different boat. Now, I'm not going to take time to read the rest of the chapter, but it's important for me to just highlight the story. And the story in the rest of the chapter is something like this. The main thing that we see is that as Jonah gets out there on the sea with these sailors is that God sends a storm. Now, it's really important for us to understand that God did that. The waves came. The winds came. The ship is bouncing up and down and up and down in the water because God did that. God caused the wind to come. God caused the storm to come. And God is sending the message very clear, I think, to Jonah, you can run, but you can't hide. He's sending the message that says, I am in control. You might think you are, Jonah, but I am in control. And so you have this amazing written description of what happens when that big storm comes. And you see these sailors running around trying to figure out what in the world is going on. And they are convinced they're going to die. Now stop and remind yourself that these are professional sailors. Professional sailors. They have seen bad storms before. But this storm is unlike anything they've ever seen before, apparently. And they're running around trying to figure out what in the world they're going to do professional sailors. When I was out east, there, there was a, uh, a guy that took me out fishing in the Atlantic Ocean for flounder. Caught one, by the way. And so I'm out there, and, and we were in that little boat on the ocean, and I started getting sick. I mean, my eyes started to cross, and the horizon was like this, and, and I said to my church buddy, who was the captain of the boat, I said, man, it's rough out here. He laughed at me. He said, he, he said, are you kidding? The sea is like glass. And I got seasick. They had to take me back. Figured they was going to lose the preacher out there on the boat. So they took me back, and they went back out fishing. You know, these, these men out on the water, they've seen storms before. But these sailors, according to the text, they are beside themselves. They're like terrified. It's, this must have been a storm like, unlike anything they've ever seen because what they do is they start grabbing stuff and throwing it overboard to lighten the boat so it doesn't get swamped. I mean, that's desperate. These professional sailors, they're like, oh man, this is bad. We're all gonna die. Now in contrast to that, mental picture of these sailors running around on deck 
thinking they're all going to die, throwing stuff overboard. Jonah is somewhere sleeping. See the irony there? So they wake him up and they say, Jonah, what in the world is going on? We've never seen anything like this before. And they say to Jonah, the prophet of God, maybe you ought to pray. Hey, there's an idea. Maybe you ought to pray. The pagan, the pagan sailor is saying, maybe you ought to pray. And he doesn't. He doesn't pray. And so they, they're still trying to figure it all out, so they cast lots. And I'm not smart enough to know exactly how they did that, but the results were that, hey, Jonah's the problem. So they pressed him a little bit for some more details and some more background, and Jonah fesses up, and they're like, what, what, so, okay, so what do we do? And Jonah says, throw me overboard. I don't know about you, but I find it remarkable that the prophet of God would rather be thrown overboard in a violent storm than pray. I just, that's, there's a whole lot of weirdness to that little detail. And so they picked him up and they threw him overboard and glub, 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 down he went. And the storm subsided. And the sailors were saved. And that's how chapter 1 ends. Now, it's way, way too easy, I think, for a preacher to beat on Jonah at this point. You know? And maybe you've heard a lot of sermons on Jonah and so it, it, this is the point where we talk about Jonah's disobedience and how Jonah should have done this, should have done that. I don't think that really Jonah's the star in chapter 1. I think God is the star. So I don't want to beat up on Jonah. I might a little bit later in the book. But I don't want to beat up on Jonah right now. I want to, I want to direct your attention to the real star the real center of attention in chapter 1, and that's God. Because as I look at the story through, through the God lens in my, in my um, eyes, I see that we learn a couple of things about God, and they're, they're really important. And maybe they're, they're um, reminders for you, but, or maybe it's something new for you. But let's focus on God and see what we can learn about God. And the first reminder that I see here in chapter 1 is this is that there is a God who speaks to us. There really is a God who speaks to us. And we see it in the, in the opening line there of the book. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. God is a God who speaks to his people. He speaks to you, he speaks to me, and he speaks to churches and we ought not take that for granted. God wants to communicate to his people. I know that we're not Old Testament prophets like Jonah, but God still speaks to us and he still communicates to us. And I, I, I want to just throw in here, um, almost parenthetically, that the one of the main ways that God speaks to us is through reading his word. And when we read his word, it gives the Holy Spirit an opportunity to like zap us or energize us or say, hey, pay attention. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but that's exactly how God called me to preach. 
When I was growing up in the church, I had this little idea in the back of my head that maybe God wanted me, wanted me to become a preacher, and I'm like, no, don't want to do that. In fact, the church culture I grew up in as a kid, a preacher had to wear a suit and tie every Sunday, and I was having none of that. No, not going to do that. And so I, I had graduated from college. I was a business major uh, going into the business world to become a multimillionaire. No, that, that part's not true, but, but I was a business major. And one early one morning, I was, I was set to, to head out and drive the one-hour drive to my job, and I was reading my Bible, and I had a really weird thing happen to me. As I'm reading my Bible, uh, I, saw, huh, I saw the white light. I, I, I don't really talk about it very often because it's, it borders on weirdness. But there was this white thing, just almost like the Damascus Road thing. And, and I felt, heard, sensed a voice, and the voice said, um, all of your questions about your life will be in the next verse you read. And God had my attention. And it was Acts 26, 16, which basically says, uh, it was um, the voice of God to Paul on the Damascus Road. And it said, arise and stand, for I have called you to become a pastor or a minister. And, and that's why I'm here today, because of, because of that moment. Because God spoke loudly to me, and I listened. We, we, we need to grab a hold of the idea that God wants to talk to you. And if you're here today and you're like, well, God never talks to me, then just pay attention. Or begin to read his word. And I, I'm sure that at some point when you're reading God's word, the Holy Spirit will just be like, eh. Or something, something inside will trigger, or you'll be like, oh, I never saw that before. I, I believe that's the Holy Spirit energizing the written word to point you to the living word. So God does want to talk to you and to me and to communicate to us. And so I'm saying, first of all, we somehow need to recapture the mindset that says, there's a God that wants to talk to me, not just to prophets, not just to preachers. God wants to talk to me and be open to that. See what it is that God has to say to you. So that's the first thing that I see. There's a God that wants to speak to us. The second thing is this. There is a God who cares about the lost. There's a God who cares about the people that don't know that he is a God who loves them. And the truth is, he loves even the scary Ninevites. <laughs> that there is no one outside the reach of God's love. God loves everybody regardless of who they are and what they've done, again, remind yourself the Ninevites are the worst people on the planet. And God wants Jonah to go there and let them know there is a God who loves them. 
God loves everybody, everybody, even the people that you are repelled by or that disgust you. Even the people who do the worst things on the planet, God, God loves them. God cares about them. Man, we need to be reminded that God loves the drug addicts in our community. God loves that person down the road from you that has a meth lab. God loves that those people that are doing horrible, unspeakable things to little kids. God even loves New England Patriot fans. <laughs> oh, did I step on a toe? Sorry about that. God loves the unlovable. And I've seen it way too much. I, I, I've seen churches that don't embrace that reality. I mean, I've been in churches where we all just love each other. And the mindset is this. That, you know, this. Oh, we just love each other. We're just a big happy family. Mm. But in reality, here's what a church ought to be. A church ought to be like this. You see? With wide open arms. Because God loves the unlovable. And I think about that, and I'm, and I'm like, ooh. I'm glad that God loved the unlovable because he even loved me. I found God at the age of seven. <laughs> Hadn't gotten into too much trouble at the age of seven, you know? Wasn't a desperado or nothing like that, you know? But at the age of seven, I felt like I was the worst despicable person on the planet. And yet, God called out my name. God loved me and he, he beckoned me to come to him and somehow God found me even in the depths of my sin at the age of seven. And guess what? God loved you and called out your name. And that's why you're here today because you recognize that there is a God that loves you regardless of your past and regardless of the things that you've done. I'm really glad that there is a God that cares about the lost. One more thought, and it's this. And this might be a little bit different thought for you, and um, if it is, hang in there for a moment while I try to explain it. But I read this story of Jonah chapter 1, and I see that God sent this great big storm, and it's like people's lives are in danger. God did that. And so I, I, I can only conclude this, that there is a God who meddles in our lives. Now, when we usually use the word meddle, M-E-D-D-L-E, meddles in, somebody, in, in somebody's life, that's a negative thing. Will you stop meddling in my life, we say. But when I use the word meddle and apply it to God, I'm meaning it to be a positive thing. 
That there is a God who not only loves you, but he loves you so much that he cares to enter into your life and push and shove and challenge and maybe even send a storm into your life like he did with Jonah. I mean, if God didn't really care about Jonah, he wouldn't have sent the storm. Think about it. I mean, Jonah, the prophet of God, didn't get a pass just because he was the prophet, and God asked him to do a hard thing. Isn't that God just said, oh, well, I, I love Jonah, and it was hard, and maybe he'll come around. Nope. He was being disobedient. He was running the other way. And so what does God do? Looks down, however he does it, I don't know, but sent the storm, boom, there it is. And he got Jonah's attention. He meddled in the life of Jonah. Now I'll stop right there and say, I'm really aware, keenly aware of the fact that if you take this idea and push it, you can ask some really troubling questions. You know, I mean, you, you can, I mean, it can lead you into deep theological waters. You know, like, well, I have cancer. Did God send me cancer to get my attention? I'm like, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that God loves you enough to be active in your life and maybe even send a storm into your life to get your attention. You know, and think about this. How many times have you gone through really deep water and you're like, man, I don't know if I can ever get through this. Man, this is awful. God, what in the world are you doing? God, do something. And you go through that deep water and then you get through the other side and you get dried off (laughs) and some time passes And you look backward through the deep water, through the storm, and you say, wow, that was the best thing that ever happened to me because it changed me. It made me a better person. And you've probably said this before. I would never choose to go through that again, but you see, God God at work. And and again, I'm not saying God is doing bad things things to you. I I, I don't know, but I'm saying there's a God who meddles in our life and he does it for our good and for his glory and to make you a better person. And for the record, I don't think every illness that we have in our life comes from the hand of God. Please don't get that idea. I'm a little wacky, but not that wacky. So I think about the things you're going through. Is it something that God is maybe going to use to get your attention? To draw you closer to him or draw you back to him? You know, there there is a, a form of philosophy called deism. And deism uh, is often called... Uh, applied to God, and it's often called the watchmaker God. And deism 
compares God to the watchmaker who carefully and intricately constructs this beautiful watch. And the watchmaker winds it up tight, sets it on the shelf, and turns and walks away to the other side of the room, and the watchmaker stands there and just watches, observes the watch as the hands go around, but he never goes over again and tends to the watch. He never goes over and oils the watch. He never, he, he's made it, but now the watchmaker removes himself and stands back and watches what's happening to the watch. Uh, that's deism. And we would say, whoa, I don't, th- I don't believe that God's like that. But the truth is that I, I find many, many Christians who are functioning deists. And by that I mean that they say they have a relationship with God and yes, God loves me, but they, they don't ever expect to see God intervene in their life. And in their mind, that God, is, God has helped them, God has restored them, God has forgiven them of their sins, but he's over there and, well, God's way too busy for me. God doesn't, you know, God's not really going to help me and give me direction in my life. He just did his thing. And this story of Jonah, in a weird sort of way, reminds me that God is a God who chooses to be active in your life. And he intervenes in your life. And he does things, whatever they might be, he does things to get your attention. Why does he do that? It's because he loves you. It's because he cares about you. And if he didn't care, he would be like the watchmaker God who sits off in the corner and just watches us flounder around. He didn't do that for Jonah. And I'm convinced he doesn't do that for us. He wants to be involved in our lives. And I think God is working behind the scenes arranging things to get our attention for our good and for his glory so that we can become better people. It's a powerful, deep, deep truth that I see being modeled for us here in Jonah chapter 1. I might just add, too, that I've, I've seen across the years this same principle applies to churches. That so many churches get comfortable with where they're at. And they just, you know, just go along, just do their thing, plan their next potluck, just whatever. But I think there are times when, when God intervenes into the life of a church, and there are some churches that when that happens, all of a sudden they're like, oh no, what do we do? Whatever it might be. I don't know, whatever it might be. And I don't know, maybe, maybe Birchridge is a little bit like that now. I, I don't know, I'm still new on the block. I don't know. Got to be a little unsettling to have your uh, pastor feel led of God to move on. And, you know, every time there's a pastoral transition like that, people are kind of like, oh, 
What are we going to do? Maybe you feel some of that. But it's a call to rally around the idea that God is at work. And God wants to work in the life of this church. And God wants to work in your life. And he wants to work in my life. Because he intervenes. He meddles in our life. And I'll say it one more time for our good and for his glory, because he loves this church and because he loves you and because he loves me. I think it's a tremendous lesson to learn. So as chapter 1 draws to a close, God is the star, and we are reminded that there is a God who speaks to us, a God who cares deeply about those that are unconvinced that there is a God who loves him, loves them, and that God does intervene and interact in our lives so that we can become better people and draw closer to him. Why don't you stand with me, and I just want to pray, and as we pray, I invite the praise team to come back up to the front. Let's pray. Father, I I don't really have a clue what some of the things these good folk are going through. I don't know if there's anybody here that feels like they're in a boat that's about to capsize or they've got things going on in their life, maybe news from a doctor or maybe financial challenges, or maybe their marriage is rocky. But Father, help them to hold tight, if that's the case, and help them to look up to you and assure them that as they call out to you and as they they grab a hold of you and you grab a hold of them, that these might be some of the most difficult days of their lives, but When it's all said and done, you have transformed them and helped them and made them even a better person. And we pray for the church today. Father, what a wonderful church this is. Incredible people. I'm blown away. Father, I know that you want to help this church as well. So we invite you to intervene in the life of this church. And may we look to you as you lead us through this pastoral time of pastoral transition. Thank you, Father, for who you are. Be with us now in the remainder of this service. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.